Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and we are looking at an election day in New York City, New York State, and we need to make sure that we go out and vote. So much has been given to us as far as information, and sometimes it's still very confusing. We still have ranked choice voting. I have voted and made a mistake on my ballot because I couldn't get the columns lined up as I thought I would be able to and had to have my ballot turned in and then get a new one. So watch out when you're voting with ranked choice voting. And remember, you don't have to vote for everyone. If they give you five options and you only want two or three of the candidates, then just go for two or three. And as I always tell people, if they have a write-in space and you don't know any of the candidates for whom you want to vote, put in my name, Gloria Brown Marshall. Write my name right into the write-in candidate section. I always tell people, fill it out no matter what. And if you don't know for whom is the best choice, then write my name in as a write-in candidate. <laughs> that will make sure that the ballot is completely filled out. And of course, will make a lot of people scratch their heads when they <laughs> count up all these ballots. Um, a lot is going on at the Supreme Court in June when the Supreme Court uh, completes its term. And this is the term that began the first week of October. And of course, during the pandemic, it has been difficult. But under the Sixth Amendment, the courts remain open and public. And the way they did it this time around was to use conference calls. Yes, the conference calls were ones in which the general public could then have a, 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 at least access to the decision making, the oral arguments, and to you know, when we had decisions that were revealed, um, hear those decisions and be able to still participate in our judicial process. It's very important that our courts remain open to the public because that way these judges and court personnel, the attorneys don't know when you, such an educated, enlightened person, will walk into that courtroom and watch as a witness to what is going on. So that is very important for you to take advantage this summer when we have our courts open again, hopefully soon, because it's been a travesty of justice, the way our courts are being run, um, as far as our criminal courts in particular, uh, with the attorneys not being able to um, talk to their clients in private. I did two shows on what we're doing as a nation when it comes to criminal justice during the pandemic. Um, but I do want you to make sure that when these courts open, you know we have a Sixth Amendment right to view our court in action and to, if you could, put pressure on our courts to make sure that the rights of our parties are upheld in spite of the pandemic. And that's been a, an issue of concern to me and hopefully to you. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court will have continued cases going forward. Um, one that, that uh, pitted the uh, the church, the Catholic Church, uh, against the rights of, of people in same-sex relationships who wanted to foster children 
through the foster care system. Our Supreme Court said that those Catholic entities that refuse to place those children in the homes of same-sex um, families um, were within their religious rights to do so. So where we have the Catholic Church having their rights, their religious um, right to support their sense that the relationship for a child should be with a family in which you have a man and a woman as opposed to a same-sex couple. And that right was upheld over the rights of same-sex families or same-sex couples to foster children. And that was a very important case. The other one we have here is the NCAA versus Austin, and that was an antitrust case. And this is very important from the standpoint that billions of dollars are made off of college athletes who are not paid. And the issue of whether or not college athletes should be paid has been an ongoing one. In this case of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA versus Austin, um, the court said that they didn't rise to the issue of whether or not college athletes should be paid, but they did say that they could receive a broader amount of compensation than what was believed before under the NCAA rules. And so this is an antitrust case. And the reason why I want you to know more about this is because there are so many student athletes who are supporting the colleges because their play in whatever sport brings in such income and yet they're not allowed to participate in any type of profit sharing. Um, they get college scholarships and that's about it. So as I quote in this um, decision that just came down yesterday, colleges and universities across the country have leveraged sports to bring in revenue, attract attention, boost enrollment, and raise money from alumni. That profitable enterprise relies on amateur student athletes who compete under horizontal restraints that restrict how the schools may compensate them for their play. The National Collegiate Athletic Association, NCAA, issues and enforces these rules, which restrict compensation for student athletes in various ways. These rules depress compensation for at least some athletes, student athletes below what a competitive market would yield. That's why, and I end quote there, and that's the beginning of the U.S. Supreme Court decision. You can read that online. That's why this is an antitrust decision, because it is depressing competition, it is depressing wages, and it is prohibiting at contracts and combinations. Um, and those uh, NCAA rules were found from a nine to zero decisions, so it's unanimous, that allege the NCAA rules violate Section 1 of the Sherman Act, which prohibits contracts, combinations, or conspiracies in re restraint of trade or commerce. So um, that doesn't rise to the level of paying student-athletes, but there are going to be many different um, ways in which this decision is going to be used in order to support more compensation for athletes. You're going to start to see um, student athletes making commercials, having their own sneakers. There's going to be a whole industry now around the access to student athletes and, um, and, and the type of payments they're going to receive based on those contracts. And I want to move again um, to... Uh, Juneteenth, 
and Juneteenth, and I say move again because Juneteenth is not just the day of June 19th. June 19th, as many of you now know, because it's been signed into a federal holiday, uh, the states are recognizing it, everything is going on, and I'm really kind of taken aback um, by the emphasis on Juneteenth that I would just say I'm not speaking for the whole group of millions of African-Americans, but I will say it took me by surprise because um, I wanted uh, police accountability and voting rights and equality in education. We get Juneteenth. I don't understand the um, the jump for Juneteenth uh, around that issue overall. And so you see how quickly it moved. It's like we've been fighting for these other things for so long. And then Juneteenth automatically, like, you know, within weeks almost becomes a federal holiday. I, it, it, it really is, is. Is this a one off of some kind that, you know, don't complain anymore about police accountability because we gave you Juneteenth? I'm not sure. It also concerns me that Juneteenth focuses on the end of slavery, the end of the Civil War, and doesn't speak to the atrocities that took place during slavery. Is this, in the same time, we negate 1619, um, the, the project with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, we don't speak to uh, the diabolical nature of enslavement and the wealth that was gained from it, and we jump to the end of it and, and celebrate the, the freedom that uh, Emancipation Proclamation was supposed to have brought. But I want to even go to that issue of Juneteenth and the Emancipation Proclamation. And very quickly, the Emancipation Proclamation signed by President Lincoln was to go into effect in January of 1863. The reason why Abraham Lincoln decided that there had to be an emancipation of the enslaved Africans who were in the states that seceded because the North was losing and needed some type of advantage. Abraham Lincoln, being a lawyer, came up with this advantage that he would allow uh, uh, this proclamation based on the fact that the North being one country, the South having seceded from the Union, was its own country. It had its own currency, its own president, its own Congress. It, it had it, its own constitution. It saw itself as a separate country. So President Lincoln decides he's going to emancipate, set free those Africans in the South, those, those countries, I mean, the other country, the states that has seceded, to undermine militarily and economically the South so that it would, the North would gain an advantage in this war and the South would lose those people who were maintaining the labor lifestyle of the South while the men, the white men, were fighting in the Confederate army. And the Confederacy then would be undermined in its ability to continue to have the economy it had it at its home while the soldiers were all fighting the war against the North. And it was a brilliant move, um, and it, but it was a military strategy. It was not considered something for the benefit of the Africans. It was for the benefit of the Union Army and the North.
And so it did not include those Africans who were in the border states enslaved there that had not seceded from the Union, but also continued to practice slavery. So that order, the Emancipation Proclamation, could only reach into the southern states that the military from the north could penetrate. And therefore, we have it not reaching Texas, of course, the southernmost state, until 1865 in June. But the war had ended in April of 1865. So there's a lot we have to understand that the North would have lost this war had it not been for the African soldiers fighting for the North who had, once they heard they were free under the Emancipation Proclamation or that the um, Northern military had reached their state, they then left that state and went up North. They went to the different parts of the um, Northern military that would allow them in and then became a part of the military by becoming the United States colored troops. Yes, the African who had been enslaved by uh, these plantation labor camps, I hate calling them plantations as though they seem like some type of resort, then became a part of the Northern military without whom the North would have lost the war. And that's why in a letter to James Conklin, dated August 26, 1863, we have Abraham Lincoln explaining that the need for the emancipation of the Africans after it became a military issue, and then it became one of what is it these Africans can now expect from us. We've emancipated them and they've become a part of our military. Um, I think it's very important for us to understand that Lincoln stated without those African troops, the North would have lost. This would have been a country under the Confederacy. That is the role, the important, the crucial role that Africans played in their own liberation and in the liberation for this country. It is not a freedom that was given, it's a freedom earned. And I say this quite often, it is a freedom earned. And 180,000 African soldiers and sailors were a part of the U.S. colored troops that turned the tide of the war. And so they earned their freedom, already earned from the 1600s to working to support this country and create what we have today, but earned also with their blood, sweat, and tears in the Civil War. Going forward, we have our last candidate, Liz Crotty, who will be with us right after this musical break. And she is the last candidate that I am interviewing anyway for the position of Manhattan District Attorney. We have been interviewing all of the candidates over the last several months. And today on Election Day, we end with Liz Crotty. We'll be back with her after this musical break. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall.
Freedom from false restrictions. Skin color, birthplace, respect the ways are all different. Let's take it back about a hundred years. Quick, let me paint this picture. America in a civil war, no Marvel movie, this history. President Lincoln had a plan to enslave only in the South. But black folks, when they heard about it, start spreading that word of mouth. Things up arms to join the union to fight for their own freedom. The colored troops helped win the war, gave the proclamation new meaning. Yeah. You better believe it. Do you know the story of Juneteenth? When the enslaved found out that they were free. Two years after 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation. Justice, when have we seen it and known it? Who are the ones who have grown it? Took it from notion to showing what's yes. Let's talk about soldiers who were free, risking their lives for people like me. All the camp folk, they may never know. Took a lead that we all could follow. Following the call for what? Justice. Bigger than land, it was for the enslaved. When you think about this proclamation, the emancipation is knowing that we were the brave. 200,000 soldiers organizing. Women and children home strategizing. Pay for protests, learn to address the power of truth and the culture uprising. Juneteenth song for kids with Alphabet Rockers. Fantastic. What is Juneteenth? And so now we move to our interview with Liz Crotty, candidate for district attorney of Manhattan, one of the, if not the most powerful prosecutor's offices outside of the federal government. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. It's election day, which what a fun day. Everyone has to get out and vote. Yes, and we are interviewing you, our last candidate of a long line of candidates for the office of district attorney. And this ends just a, such a, an appropriate day on the final day. Um, and I'm sure you're very busy, so we'll get right into it if you don't mind. Um, so Elizabeth Crotty is someone with six years of career experience at the Manhattan DA's office, but has been working um, in um, private practice as well, working with criminal as well as civil complex international investigations and litigation um, in private practice as well as in her time in the DA's office. And so... Um, one of the questions that we have for all of the candidates is your position on national criminal justice reform. Right. Well, I mean, I come at it for, as like a practitioner who's worked on both sides of the courtroom. And so I really think we have to actually get the, the system working correctly um, in the sense of being fair and uh, across the board. I've been very vocal about how orders of protection are just 
issued without any investigation, using certificates of readiness to prolong cases unnecessarily. I mean, these are the first steps that I think we have to take, and then we can take, you know, a, a wholesale look on how to reform the system. I mean, I don't think there's a government agency out there that can't do better, um, but I also think we also have to do what we're doing fairly and equally. So that, that's really my take on things. Have you had a chance to review the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and um, what changes to uh, what you make um, to strengthen it or what things would you add or take away? I mean, I, you know, I don't I, it's been a busy election season. And so I don't want to misstate it. Um, I think that we have to look at you know, making sure that everyone feels safe. And I've been running a public safety campaign. And I think we have to acknowledge that not everyone feels safe when they see the police, and we have to work on that. But as to the specifics of that right now, I, I'm just not equipped to go into it. It's election day. It's been a long season. I, I haven't, I mean, I, I was very familiar with it. I think some parts are great. I think some parts are, should have further attention. But right now, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm really focusing on getting out the vote today. That's that's my that's what I'm working on today. Okay, so, so the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is not on the table right now. No, I'm not saying it's not on the table. I'm not saying it's not off the table. I'm just saying today, I'm I'm here to talk about getting out the vote. That that's what we have. I mean, if the election goes my way, I'm I'm very excited to come back and give a full debrief on the George Floyd and Justice Act. Okay. Are you prepared to talk about any questions that the voters want to hear about? These are the same questions asked of all the other candidates. Yes, I, I am, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't have my, so what are the other questions? Um, your position on special prosecutors. What, what do you mean, the special narcotics prosecutor or on what kind of prosecutor? Well, we are um, at a time, the reason why George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, is pivotal here, May 25th uh, was the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. Uh, Derek Chauvin's sentencing takes place on Friday. Um, we are living in a world in which um, the, the issues around police-involved civilian deaths is pivotal to criminal justice. It's one of the number one issues when it comes to tensions between police and civilians. You are running for the office of Manhattan District Attorney, as you know, and this office is has a national presence. And so therefore, this issue around um, police-involved civilian deaths and uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, is of grave concern to our listeners. And that's why this is a question that's relevant to your election. Yeah, no, I think we can always do better. And I think, you know, we have to we have to work. But I think you have to work with the police. Um, and I think you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. I think and I've been very stri straightforward and direct. Uh, you know, everyone should be held accountable, uh, defendants and police alike. And you can't accept bad policing. Um, but all, at the same time, I do think that police do good things, too. I think that, you know, and really try and work to keep communities safe. So I think that this is where we have to come at it from. And this is where I've been coming at it from. So, you know, I think that w there's always room for improvement. I think we all need to do better. I think police reform is something that is very much everybody wants to see across the board. But how we do it, the way we do it, that all still has to be worked out. And I think, you know, when it comes to George Floyd, that was a tragedy. tragedy. And I don't think that was policing. I think that was, you know, that was a, a tragedy of somebody who, who, who really was 
not, you know, who was found guilty by a court of law, rightly so. And I think that that the, the, the courts have spoken. I think we have to. And, you know, that's an example of the courts working correctly. And I think that that's what we need to be working on is making sure the courts work correctly and, and, and everyone gets their day in court, uh, victims and defendants alike, and that we know that people have the public trust of the district attorney's office so that victims feel heard and defendants feel like they're getting a fair shot. And that's the, what I want to bring to the district attorney's office. And so the other questions I have for you are going to be along the same line. Um, the questions we've asked other candidates are going to be the questions I continue with right now. And um, I know this is election day, but you're listening to constituents. And this um, program is not just the five boroughs, it is the region. And then, of course, WBAI.org is online nationally and internationally. So your voice is well beyond even the borough you're running for as DA. Um, so the questions I'm asking you will continue as long as you're on the line. I know this is a busy day for you, but um, this is what we've been doing with all the candidates. Um, absolute immunity and prosecutorial discretion. Many of our listeners are concerned that the prosecutors have too much power, that they have the, the ability to, as you know, in their discretion, decide whether or not to bring a case. That's necessary, of course, or it would be even more of a, a logjam in our criminal justice system. But what about the immunity that prosecutors have when it comes to uh, prosecutors that are not doing their job effectively. As DA of, of Manhattan, what would you do in those situations in which you find there are prosecutors who have overstepped their bounds or acted in ways that are inappropriate for their offices? Right. Well, this is where it comes in handy that I've actually been on both sides of the courtroom. So just so you know, I was a prosecutor from 2000 to 2006. For the past 12 and a half years, I've been a defense attorney. So I've been representing everyday people's rights in court on a daily basis. And I have actually probably kept the most people out of jail in this race. So I understand what the prosecutors should do and how they should do it and how they should do it fairly. And, you know, you, that's the leadership of the office and you set a tone. And the tone has to be the job is to do the right thing. When I started in 2000, Mr. Morgenthau was my boss. And on the first day, he said the job is to do the right thing. I've learned in doing all of this and being a defense attorney, there are bad decisions. There are bad days. There are bad circumstances and there are bad acts. And we should set a tone in an office that prosecutes accordingly so that what we do is we look at the each and every case and look at the facts of each and every case so that when we're doing it, we're going to say, hey, we're going to hold you accountable. Accountability does not mean jail, but accountability means holding people responsible for their actions and saying, how can you do better so that you don't come back? That's leadership. That's a vision of the office. And that's why I'm running for this office. And so when you have prosecutors who have bad acts, what are the consequences for those prosecutors? Well, I think if you I think if you have prosecutors who do bad acts, then this is not the job for them. They are holding the public trust. If they violate the public trust, then they should not have that job anymore. That's the kind of person I am. That's how I've, I've lived my life. And that's how I'd, uh, I'd run that office. If you're not acting within the mandate of fairness and equal footing in a level playing field, then I don't think the district attorney's office is the right place for you.
And so they may lose their jobs, but other people are losing their livelihoods and having incarceration as their consequence. As we've noted um, in, in many other instances, but in particular the instances in Brooklyn in which we had a prosecutor and several prosecutors who were working with a bad cop. And this resulted in dozens of people who were incarcerated unfairly. And those prosecutors did not receive any punishment. And what people are saying, this prosecutorial discretion and this lack of punishment for prosecutors who are the bad apples. We even see police officers who on occasion will receive some note in the file, at least something we have in the Derek Chauvin case, which is extreme. But what happens to a bad or corrupt prosecutor? Well, I said that they've lost their job and they would lose their job and we'd open the investigation. I believe it was the Manhattan DA's office who actually uh, tipped off about the narcotics prosecutor where they ended up uh, dismissing all those cases. So I think that, um, you know, we, we always have to act fairly. I think the great thing about running for this race is that, you know, you really have a lot of um, ideas and people out there. And I think no matter who becomes the next DA, myself included, a very robust conviction review unit will be put in place where I think it should not be staffed by someone from within the office, uh, but outside so that we know that we can right the wrongs and, and try and make what's right. I completely understand that if somebody's been in jail wrongly and wrongly accused and wrongly put in jail, I don't know that you can make that right. I mean, that's just... But you, we'd, we'd have to do everything within our power to try and make it right. And that might entail what? I mean, I think that it's a review of the facts. It's, it's, it's you know, what, what we can do. Also, the people who are wrongly jailed, they also have mechanisms within their rights where they can um, have different civil suits. Um, and I think that that's what we need to do. So that it, it's all different mechanisms of the law. But as a district attorney, I think we have to do whatever we can do to make it right. And you've had your firm and with a partner for 12 years in which you have represented people, as you stated, um, ranging from grand jury or grand larceny, I should say, fraud, assault to rape, DWI and weapons possession. Have you had any major white collar crime cases? Yes, I have, both as a district attorney and as a defense attorney. I have done, um, when I was a DA, I worked on the um, oil for food case where we were investigating Saddam Hussein for violating the sanctions uh, program. That was an international case where I traveled worldwide and worked with law enforcement all over the world. Um, I did that as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. I have done um, large-scale investigations, defended people in uh, investigations and in cases uh, from white-collar tax, um, federal cases. You know, my clients didn't sign up to be part of my campaign, So, but I have done extensive work as a white-collar defense attorney. And how many people have you supervised? Uh, well, you know, I have, I've, I have managed, I've done close to 4,000 cases, and I've run a business for 12 and a half years. Um, so I think yes, it's a, it's a it's a macro to a micro it's a micro to a macro level. But um, you know, running a business, um, servicing well over close to three thousand clients in twelve and a half years, I think that speaks to my business acumen. Running um, a, running an agency, running a business, getting along with people. Um, these are all the things that go into running an office. I, I feel very fully equipped to do that. You know, and also to my campaign. 
I'm really proud of the campaign we run. We've probably we've raised under just under a million dollars, and we've, we're finishing strong. Um, and I think that that really speaks to in ten months how we've been able to get the message out in a really effective way with not a ton of money, which we know there's a ton of money in this case. So I'm really proud of that campaign and how we did it. And I think it speaks volumes of what I can do for this office. And so in those different capacities in the DA's office, as well as in your own firm, about how many people were under your supervision? Um, what, what do you, it, when I was a D, when I was a DA, well, I've been supervised as the DA's office. Um, I, I did not supervise anyone. I was a line assistant, and then I was in the investigative division. So I never supervised anyone. And then I've run a firm. We have a, an associate. We have several of counsels. We've worked with different um, investigators and different forensic accountants. So I've, I've managed, you know, various people at various times. But again, it's a, it's a micro to a macro level. And we'll have just a few more questions. And one focuses on endorsements. Are there any endorsements that you want to tell us about that you're very proud of? Well, I'm, I'm endorsed by all the first responders. That's the, the NYPD, the fire department, the EMTs, Ray Kelly, uh, Dick Condon, Dick Ravitch, the Pride Democrats, and Stonewall Rebellion Veterans Association. So I've, I've gathered across, you know, New York City people who have worked hard to keep New York City safe. And I think that that's an important thing because I think people don't feel safe right now. And, and, and that's what I really want to do. I want to do it fairly, constitutionally, but I want everyone to feel safe in every neighborhood here in New York. And I think my endorsements speak to that. And when you say feel safe, what does that mean? When you're, what, what, what well, would you I mean, be I doing people, and, and, as far as a policy me, around say, feeling so who's safe? Vote for you? And I said, well, people who ride the train to work. And they're like, and people who want to go to the store at eight o'clock at night and have, not have a problem. People want to take their kids to the playground at, in the afternoon and not have a problem. That's the way I live in New York. I'm a born and raised New Yorker from downtown, from Stuyvesant Town, you know, and I was raised here. I've gone to school here, took the train to high school. I'm a normal, everyday person. And I'm running a campaign based on normal, everyday people who want to feel safe. That's what it's about, and that's what I'm running on. But when you say feel safe, what does that mean when it comes to the DA's office? Feeling safe means what in, as far as policies that you would be putting forward in your um, um, capacity as a well, DA I always of Manhattan? Like, I always feel like I'm going to put facts before policy, right? So that's A. So you always put the facts of each and every case before you put it a policy in place because you have to listen to the individual facts. And we've seen a rise in hate crimes. We've seen a rise in domestic violence. We've seen rises in, in, in random attacks on the street. Shootings are up. You know, there's been over 650 shootings this year, and there, it's on track to be over 1,000 shootings. So I think that that's what I mean when people don't feel safe. You know, and people don't want to have random acts of crime. And I think we have a responsibility as the district attorney's office from keeping innocent people from becoming victims of crime. So that means holding people accountable and taking it seriously. And in holding people accountable, because you're not the police department, even though you work with them, I'm trying to just very, be very clear. What is, in your capacity as a DA, would you be doing differently to make people feel safe? Well, I think, you know, we just had a headline where it said they dropped all the looting cases. And how does that really reflect on small business owners? And how does that reflect on the people who did looting? And then they're like, or other people who read it say, oh, I can loot a store and get away with it. 
I mean, there is a clarity principle here where when people get arrested, they don't think, oh, I'm going to get 30 days. They don't think, oh, I'm going to get three to six years in jail. They're going to think, I don't want to spend the next 24 hours in jail. And that's what keeps people from committing crimes. I think we have to really be, you know, and set a tone where if you commit crimes here in New York, you're going to be held accountable fairly and constitutionally, but you're going to be held accountable. And I think headlines that say, you know, oh, let them loot. You know, that, that's detrimental to everyone who lives here. That, that's detrimental to the everyday citizen. That's in, detrimental to the small business owner who's feeling the effects of all of that. And I think that that's what I'm speaking to when I say we need to have everyone feel safe. And we're running out of time, so I'll ask you the question I've asked every candidate. Why should people vote for you? Well, I always say the same thing because I'm a nice person. Um, and then, and then we can go from there. But you know, I, I've, I'm a dedicated um, criminal law practitioner who's been doing this on both sides of the courtroom for 21 years. I feel passionately about everyone having their day in court, having their voice heard, victims and defendants alike. Um, this is what I've been doing for 21 years, and this is how I think I can best serve the city. So I hope that I. You, People who are listening, they go out and vote today. If they like what they heard, I hope they go vote for me. But I think, more importantly, we need to go and vote. There's really been a diversity of voice in this race, which I think is great. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said the the bedrock of democracy is the diversity of voice. I think there's a lot of great choices out there. I've really enjoyed running with my colleagues. And thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. Liz Crotty, candidate for... Manhattan District Attorney. We'll be right back after this musical break on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I want to hear from you. What do you think of our interview? What do you think of this candidate? 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We'll be right back.
cutest And read the ladies brothers wonder who this And the DJ killing it the night Everybody trying to see who they chilling with the night When I spot my sight And my shorties know who I'm on It's the cutie over there smelling like Boucheron Request line, request line. That was Jeanne featuring our own Queen Latifah. Yes. And that was a request line remix from 1997. Can you believe it? I was just a little girl. Yeah, right. Okay, so Law of the Lab with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We just heard the interview with our last candidate that we're interviewing for the position of Manhattan District Attorney. What did you think? We've opened the line up, the request line, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. And we have our first caller. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you for your coverage of the Manhattan D- DA race. Uh, I'm not going to vote for her, but one thing I wanted to add um, was that the black soldiers that joined in the Civil War, that joined the Army, the, um, the Confederate Army did not take any black prisoners. They murdered any black soldier that was um that was taken prisoner. They took white soldiers as prisoner, as well as the Union Army took Confederate prisoners. But any black soldier that joined and was, um, they didn't take black soldiers as prisoners. So that's you're so you're so right. And we know that um, Nathan Bedford was the leader of the Confederacy at Fort Pillow that slaughtered oh. black soldiers that we should have been taken as prisoners of war. Instead, it's the notorious um, massacre at Fort Pillow where those black soldiers were indeed slaughtered, murdered, uh, and thrown into a mass grave. Thank you for raising that. And he became the head of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, uh, uh, he became, he, he, he's thought of as the founder of and leader of the Ku Klux Klan. You're right. Thank you so uh, much for bringing that up. Thank you so much for everything. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll hang up now, but your coverage of the, of the DA race is really important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And on WBAI, where else could you have something like this happen? I'm just so proud of the fact that I was supported and in doing something like this to, to have nine interviews consecutively talking about the Manhattan DA's race. That That's a, a lot of support. And I'm very proud of this station. And you're on Law of the Land. Good morning. Hello. Yes. Hello. hello. You're on. Hey, how you doing? Hey, uh, oh, this mm-hmm. person, uh, Liz Crowdy, is, is just such a double talker. Uh, she and I, and it was very difficult for me to d- decide if that person was female or male, but that's besides the point. But they made it clear that for bad prosecutors and for bad police, accountability does not mean jail. But for looters, that means jail. This person is basically saying, for black people that they put cases on as, as looters in protest, you go to prison. For bad prosecutors, for bad police, you don't go to prison. So this person is towing the police line, towing the line for bad prosecutors. This person is a corrupt and a criminal. I would never vote for this person. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. And I, as I said, um, the questions I asked at one point, I thought the interview was going to end early because I'm like, if you're not going to answer any questions, you think we're just going to be on this, this telephone, giving you a platform to boast about yourself. That's not what this show is about. I don't know um, how she got that twisted. And I love you for that because you were being very specific. You were forcing this, uh, this so-called politician to be specific, but she, but this person avoided your your efforts to make her specific. This is this is double talking. This is what you get from a lot of politicians who have already decided that they're not going to serve the people, but they're going to serve police unions, serve bad bad prosecutors, and serve themselves. So you did a very good job in trying to make this person specific, but she did everything to avoid being specific. But she did make it very clear that accountability does not mean prison for bad police and bad prosecutors, but it does mean prison for the average person on the street who may have been protesting, and we know how they, how they have, have uh, fabricated these, these, these cases against protesters, but that means prison for them. So you did an excellent job. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And this is Law of the Land. We're having our post-interview um, discussion with you, our WBAI listeners, because I tell you, you're smart people. And we have this program, Law of the Land, for you to inform and to enlighten and to make sure that we know what's going into this process. It's Election Day. And as you go out and make your decisions this June 22nd, and we need for you to be informed, and we wanted to help to do that. I think we have one more caller. Um, good morning. You're on Law of the Land. Good morning. Am I on now? Yes, you are. Okay, good. I was talking last time with the brother. First, I got to run it down real quick. Excellent interview. I second what that brother said, so that sum up a lot of my words. I absolutely um, have the same sentiment. I would never vote for her. She was, oh, man, she's a double talker. Your brother said it, so that's it. I'm just seconding to add emphasis. Okay, and now, since it's the last interview, because I was up here trying to, listen, early this morning, don't back off, Gloria. I got back on. You know who this is. This is your, you're my future, um, um, my future professor. And John Jay, um, if once they pull this whole thing out that you got to get a jab and go back to school, it's not happening. And I found law under that, but I'll give that before I, I found federal law because it's E versus EUA. But that's beside the point. But just if you want, it's EUA. We're not mandating. Specifically, since institutions, schools, all of them cannot mandate that. So, um, but um, so 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 um, um, so Miss um, the other thing is um. Uh, regarding, um, I said, yeah, I'm looking, I'm trying to get her past interviews because your number one issue, or at least it certainly seems like it's my number one issue, but it's absolutely an issue that was um, very important to you. And it was, the, uh, what is it called? It's immune immunity thing for the police. And what is it called real quick for the um, It's qualified immunity for police and appears to be absolute immunity for prosecutors. Absolutely, thank you. That yes. is absolutely that. Mm -hmm. And then what's going to happen to them when they do this, when it's found that they're, they're holding this corporate evidence and, and purposely, you know, for the move on. So my point is um, lose a job, something, a career, this will then tamper it. People will let put this up in less jeopardy to, to, to um, to, let's say, to be a part of something else, or we're going to just get, get this one, we're going to convict this one. But when you're putting your career in jeopardy and or your, your freedom, you are less likely to do that. So the bottom line is it's a human thing. 
It's just like oh, a lot of people who wouldn't do crime, rob a bank or whatever. We know what they well, I ain't doing that. I'm not going to risk it. It's not worth it. But you know what I'm just saying? So you don't put those. You have to have something on the other side of the scale to correct people. You have to at the end of the day. And when they weren't willing to it, everybody that wasn't on this or they did the dunking and dodging of that question, I was crossing them off. So that, that brings me to the last thing. Either you can tell me who you voted for since you did all your interviews, because that's exactly who I'm going to vote for. Or I think it was a lady. <laughs> I want to say it was the one behind. She, she has a Jewish last name, but she wears a, um, a, a hibab, I think it's called. Um, the Hami Ruby saying something if I remember right. I said, damn, I got the paper. I can't find it. That was the only one who seemed that she was like, I am definitely willing to, um, to, to you know, but basically to, to punish them in some way, shape, or fashion if they, and, and, and she wanted to address the whole absolute immunity. That was the only one. So that's it. I'm quiet. So can you tell me who you voted for and or, and or just tell me who that was if you made a note, if you marked that down or something like that, because that's who I'm voting for today for man this morning. Well, you know, bro, I can't tell you who I voted for. Oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, that's not going to happen. But, now. Okay. No, I'm not going to do that. But okay. I will, and I'm like going back over uh, to, to look at the candidate listing so I can name all the candidates. So we have um, Alvin Bragg. We have uh, Tally. For Hadian Weinstein. That was her. That's we have, nope, wait, wait a minute. The, the person wearing the job is Tahani Abushi. She was the one you might be thinking about. That's we the name, right. Okay, we have Lucy Lang. And oh. we have, of course, Liz Crotty. We have Dan Court. I don't know. It's like, so we're, nope, we're nope. looking. I remember it was Tahani okay. Abushi, but I got it mixed up because I was seeing the other one on the picture. And I, I put the name behind you, honestly, with the, it sounded sort of Arab. So I was like, oh, I think that's her. Okay. But, but let, me, no. let me name so, the so others so I can be fair. We have Eliza Orleans and Diana Florence. And okay, that sure. is with our Thank Liz Crotty we yeah, had interviewed today. We now, have other, one other person. We're running out of time. So, bro, let me go so to the next caller, if you don't mind. Okay. So we have one last quick caller coming in. I'm sorry, we have a long list, but um, I, I want to make sure that we can get one more caller in. You're on Law of the Land. Good morning. Okay, good morning. Good morning, Mr. Marshall. I'm, I'm at a at a disadvantage. I'm not known to be somebody to talk quickly. I'm calling from the Bronx, but I just want to say thank you so much for that interview and for pressing the point. Um, the last time I spoke to you was uh, either around the time when you did that special for the presidential election or it might have been when you did the uh, memorial to uh, Justice Ginsburg. At any rate, I feel like I talked to you at very important times, and do not let anybody tell you this is not an important time. That I, I, I'm interested, before I go any further, can you just tell me the name of the candidate you just spoke to this morning? I missed Liz Crotty, C-R-O-T-T-Y, Crotty. Okay, I want to make sure I avoid that name on the ballot, because in this day and age, in this particular election, where from the mayor down to the city council people, down to the control. Everybody that's running has made policing a serious central issue, regardless of what side you fall on. And you ask a question like that, an important question like that, and you can't give me a definitive answer where you fall on it, and the few answers that you do give me tell me if I read between the lines exactly where you fall, I'm sorry. She is somebody who did not, who underestimated 
uh, to your point, WBAI callers are very intelligent and knowledgeable callers, and I think she underestimated her audience because that right there just put you in a bucket, mama. I'm sorry. You cannot, not in this day and age, not come with a commitment or a serious, decisive answer on an issue like that and let me know exactly where you're for. I think she was concerned about alienating people, and that's why she tried so hard to, to, to not answer the question. And a few times she did, she let you know that she falls on that pro-police side. Okay, and, and that's important. I've been seeing people walking around the street um, campaigning for judges, for city council people, and it's almost as if they're instructed not to be able to answer that question. I asked a young lady one time, she was showing me something about a judge, and I said, where do they fall on policing as far as, you know, because I'm hearing Adams talking about um, stopping frisk might be a possibility and all this kind of stuff like that. She didn't even know, I mean, like, she looked at me like I had two heads, and she couldn't even answer the question. you got to come better than that. And if that lady is supposed to be the person that's in charge of administering justice in the city, I'm sorry, I got an issue with you. Thank you so much, Ms. Marsh. Have a beautiful day. Thank you, sir. And I just want to follow up, and we don't have time for any more callers. I apologize. And we are, you know, as you see, we're like on our game. And I don't know what she thought she was walking into, but um, I had to remind her that, yes, uh, we're here with, with questions. And as I've said before, if there's a topic of concern you think I should be addressing, uh, please send me an email, GB Marshall, Marshall with two L's, G for Gloria, B for Brown, Marshall, GB Marshall at WBAI.org. I want to hear from you. If there are issues of concern you think that we should be investigating here on Law of the Land, I want to turn these last few minutes over to what is actually going to take place at the end of this week, and that it will be the sentencing of Derek Chauvin in the murder of George. Floyd. Um, Derek Chauvin was found to be guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. He's going to be sentenced by Judge Peter Cahill of Hennepin County in Minnesota. And Judge Peter Cahill has signaled in many ways that he believes there are grounds for appeal of the sentence that of guilty that um, Derek Chauvin received from the jury based on the fact that there were some incidents with two particular jurors, one in um, in a case in which he has said during the voir dire, and the voir dire is the questioning that a potential juror goes through to determine whether or not they have any biases, to ask questions by defense counsel as well as prosecutors of the person's background, and to make a decision whether or not that person would be a good juror. The um, Constitution allows for a jury, um, but it has to be a jury of unbiased people. In this criminal case, uh, that particular juror said that they that he had not participated in any protests and had not made up his mind. A picture was found later of him of protesting and that uh, actually wearing a George Floyd T-shirt. And so that issue and, and the issues as to whether or not uh, comments made by Congresswoman Maxine Waters during the protests prior to the jury verdict and other comments made by others, uh, the comments made by President Joe Biden, all of these things they're saying could have swayed the jury, even though at the end the jury was sequestered or uh, put in isolation. 
So we're watching Judge Peter Cahill around this issue. And we need to understand that um, the discretion that the judge has, there's a sentencing guideline, but that sentencing guideline could have um, lead to a higher sentence based on some aggravating factors. Aggravating factors meaning the cruelty of Derek Chauvin's actions, the fact that this incident, the murder took place in front of children and um, the vulnerability of George Floyd during that time period. Um, some of the other mitigating factors that could bring the sentence down is the fact that um, Derek Chauvin doesn't have a prior record. Of course, there are other incidents in which he did the same thing to other black people and whether or not those incidents will be considered by um, Judge Cahill, we're not sure. We know that the possibility of up to 25 to 30 years, but we know there's also the, the instance of consecutive versus concurrent sentencing, meaning consecutive is for each one of those guilty verdicts, will there be a sentence that runs one after the other consecutively, which could lead up to almost 75 years, or will it run concurrently, meaning they run all at the same time? I have said that I think that might be 12 and a half to 15 years. That's a very conservative um, number. And others have said up to 20 to 25 years. We don't know. But Friday at 2.30, it's been changed before. But Friday at 2.30, expect the sentencing in the George Floyd case. Not since Judge Lance Ito in the Los Angeles case of O.J. Simpson have people been waiting to find out what a judge is going to decide. Um, so as we go forward, uh, we know in the case of Judge Lance Ito, who retired from the L.A. courts in 2015, he presided over the O.J. Simpson case in which O.J. was found not guilty. So much has happened look forward to being a part of what you are going to be doing in the future. Um, take care of yourself.